Welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM himself, Wayne Davis, and over the course of these episodes, we'll be building a Deadlands Classic campaign that you can run for your players. Last week, we came up with some NPCs for our little town of Triumph and decided who owns what in town. Of course, I also suggested, as I always try to, that you should populate Triumph the way you think works best for you. After that, we walked through the character creation process and created a former soldier who's now a blessed preacher out to save the West from all the weirdness that's out there. This week, we're going to start working up the first few encounters of our campaign, and I'll try to explain my thinking behind doing them the way I'll be suggesting. But before we do any of that, I need to keep a promise I made to you last week. See, we spent so much time last week on our character creation that I ran out of time to trot out the characters that my players created, so that you'll understand some of the decisions I'm making about the story as we move along. So, without further ado, let's discuss what my players came up with in their Session Zero. I guess I should probably explain what a Session Zero is. I mean, if you've been a longtime listener of my show Role-Playing History, I've discussed Session Zero on more than one occasion. But since I know we've got listeners who haven't followed that show before, let me break it down for you real quick. Session Zero is, simply put, a session where the GM and the players get together for the sole purpose of creating characters. In my opinion, the game should not start immediately after this session. Session zero should be specifically for creating characters and making sure they're as together as they can possibly be by the end of the session. If you've got time left and you want to do something, play a board game or run a game of tune or something. Don't start the new game that night, even though you're going to be tempted to. In the case of my group, we actually had two session zeros on the same night. I typically wouldn't have recommended that either, but both my friend Jim and I were prepping new campaigns, and since my previous one had ended, we didn't have a game to play that night. So for the both of us, it made sense to create characters for our campaigns. And in about five hours, we created characters for two completely different game systems. We might have gotten it done a bit faster if we'd pushed, but since we knew we weren't doing anything else that night, we didn't. Anyway, that's Session Zero, and for you old-school gamers out there, yes, it's what we used to call a character creation session, or whatever term your OG group used. So, I have five players in my group. Jim and Scott, who are friends of mine going back more than 35 years. They're the two who've actually played Deadlands before, but much like I said last week, it's been more than a decade since I ran last, so we're all a little rusty. Gabe, Aniston, and Max are my other three players. Gabe's the oldest son of another of our friends, and Max is his half-brother, and Aniston is Jim's son. For Max and Aniston, this is the second game of mine that they've been in, and Aniston's played in one or two other games, but neither one of them have a ton of experience. Oh, and in case you remembered me saying that one of these players is my partner in Bad GM Productions, it's Gabe. Young minds, fresh ideas, kids. The character creation process went really quick with these five, but I was surprised to find that, for the most part, all five of them took some sort of gun-toting character, though there are a few caveats to that that I'll mention in a minute. Jim's character is a bounty hunter who served in the Civil War. Now, he drew a joker during his character creation, and so he's got a hole in his memory. He decided to let me fill that blank in, and I determined that he's got missing memories of things that happened to him during the war. 
The reason why I did that is that it allows me to bring in people and issues that happened as a result of things that he can't remember doing. And we'll see how that plays out. Jim's a really good role player, so presenting something like that to him is something I don't even think twice about doing. He'll figure out how to make it work for him, and we'll pull it off. Scott, unfortunately for him, drew two jokers. And on top of that, he decided to take the hindrance loco at five points. Basically, that should mean he's sewer rat crazy, which would make the character practically unplayable. However, the jokers led us to him having a quirk that I was able to finagle to explain why he's so loco. Plus, he's got somebody out there that doesn't care too much for him, and that can also play into the local. This is a point where I need to stop and point something out. When Scott announced he was taking the five-point loco, Jim questioned whether or not that would make the character playable. He's also a GM, and during this process, he and I were helping each other help everyone get characters ready for two games. However, after thinking about it, I decided to okay it because I trust Scott's ability to pull off the role play without either overdoing it or underdoing it. That being said, if anybody else had tried it, I would have said no. I would have suggested they could take a three-point loco, but not a five. You have the option in your game to prohibit any use of the loco hindrance, especially if you've got new role players. Like I said, I know I can trust Scott, so I let it go. Plus, I did him a huge favor in working out his background so that it all plays into itself and is therefore playable. Oh, and did I mention Scott rides an old donkey and carries dynamite and nitroglycerin in his saddlebags? Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Gabe decided he wanted to play a gambler, but he decided to give himself a role-playing challenge by taking the hindrance pacifist. It is exactly what you think it is. He really doesn't want to fight. Now, my ruling on that is that he won't allow himself to be shot or stabbed just because he doesn't want to fight. He's a pacifist, not an idiot. However, what it does mean is that his character will try everything he can to avoid the fight and will only draw his weapon when all other options have been eliminated and he has no other choices. I also stress to him the importance of remembering that his character will probably walk away from a fight if he can. After all, if that's an option, it's one he has to consider. Aniston also took Loco, but he took it at the three-point value, and that was his call. Though, like I said a minute ago, I wouldn't have let him take it at the five-point level if he'd asked. He also chose to play a sort of mad scientist character, and he also carries dynamite and nitroglycerin around on his donkey. Yeah, he and Scott are going to be the death of me in this game. I can see it already. I decided for Aniston's Loco, he has an extreme fear of farm animals. I could have chosen just about anything, but farm animals are something he can come into contact fairly easily with, so it gives an opportunity to force some role-playing on him. We'll see how that goes. Max decided to go with a gunslinger, and he kept his design pretty simple. Nothing wrong with that, and in fact, we suggested that to him when he was trying to decide what he wanted to be. And you should encourage your players the same way. Not everybody's going to want to be a blessed preacher, like our character from last week. Some folks are going to want to keep it simple while they learn the rules. That's perfectly okay. I highly recommend to let them do that. Besides, if they decide later on they want something with a little more panache, Deadlands provides way more opportunities to create a new character and insert them into an existing campaign. Alright, so that's my group. When you build yours, just remember to take your time and provide your players with the room to feel out what they want to be. If you do that, 
your group should come together pretty easily. If it doesn't, hit me up. I'll help you through it any way I can. All right, so we've got our town, our group, and some of the NPCs for the town. At this point, we need to start writing the adventure, don't you think? So here's where I'm going to do exactly what I said not to do in an episode of Role Playing History a couple months ago. At that time, I suggested that before you ever start writing the actual adventure, you should outline your campaign from beginning to end with a basic understanding of who your big bad evil guy is going to be and the basic arc you want your group to take from beginning to end. We're not going to do that here, and let me tell you why. I've got five players who need to learn the rules for a new system, basically, and I don't know how well these characters are going to work together, or if they're even going to work together. Plus, and I'm almost ashamed to admit this, I have no idea who the big bad evil guy is even going to be yet. So, I'm going to pivot and do something a little different. A little different for me, anyway. I've decided that most of the first quarter of the campaign is going to be devoted to seeing how the characters work together, and I'll do that by presenting them with various encounters to test them. I'll pepper in a few bad guys and gals, and depending on how things play out, one of them might wind up being the big bad evil guy. But that just depends on how it feels when I'm running the game. If they don't make it, eh, we'll figure something out. This quarter of the game will also allow me to present folks from the characters' pasts, and that could also be what leads us into our overrunning arc. Again, we're going to kind of wing it on that point and see where the chips fall. Yeah, this is, this is how I got myself in trouble last time, and I swore I wasn't going to do it again. See, I told you I'm not the world's best GM. Anyway, let's work up our first night of gaming and see how it goes. Oh, and just so you know, I went and printed up a calendar for 1876 because I intend to try to keep track of days in this game since I want to utilize seasons a little bit more this go-around. And again, yes, I'm that kind of geek. We're starting on April 11th, 1876 in the town of Triumph, Kansas. It's early evening in town and the mines are shutting down for the night, which means that folks are headed into town for a drink and some entertainment. I would recommend asking each of your players where they are when the game starts, because that will come into play shortly after we start. I'll lay even money that at least one of them will be in the tavern, but at least one of them won't be, and where they are will depend on their background. Also, for the folks inside the tavern, ask them where they are and what they're doing. Are they sitting at the bar? And if so, where at the bar? Are they near the door? Or are they all the way down at the other end? Are they at one of the card tables? Which reminds me, what card games are you playing? Pharaoh? Poker? Blackjack? That's one of those things that adds flavor to your game. The player won't actually have to play the game. I mean, that's what die rolls are for. But I've seen games played at conventions where the players actually have to play cards. It's interesting, but it adds a lot of time to the game overall. I don't do it, but if you think it might work for you, play away, my friend. If a player's sitting at a regular table, are they sitting with anybody else? Are they sitting with their back to the wall, a la Wild Bill Hickok? Also, do any of your group members know each other? And if they do, are they hanging out and or watching each other's backs? Again, these are all things we'll need to know as we start the game, because we're going to get into it pretty darn quick, though the players won't know that, but they probably will suspect when you start asking where they're at. Unless, of course, they're listening to this podcast, and then they will know, and I'm sorry about that. Once we know where everyone is, have the players do a little bit of role play. Those playing cards should make a few rolls against the house to see how they do at the table. 
Those sitting at the bar can strike up conversations if they want, and anyone outside the tavern can get involved in some sort of conversation or interaction if they want. After a bit, here's where we really get started. First off, anyone outside the tavern who happens to be outside will see six men right up to the tavern on horseback. They're riding east to west, and they pull up outside and quickly secure their horses to the posts. Two of the men pull either rifles or shotguns from their horses when they dismount, and they'll take up positions on either side of the swinging doors to the tavern, looking to keep those inside, inside, and preventing folks on the outside from coming in. The other four head inside and immediately form a perimeter around the tavern, making sure one of them covers each of the four walls of the tavern where they can see as much as they possibly can. Now, if you've got someone outside the tavern who saw this, you can have them make rolls to see if it occurs to them what's about to go down. I'd make the rolls pretty easy since the two dudes at the door are pretty much a dead giveaway. Handle initiative between the men on the door and your characters outside. Also, if you want to, or if you don't have anyone outside, you can have the town marshal get involved with what's going on outside. That, of course, is your prerogative, and you can always hold the marshal back in case the group can't handle things and needs a little help. Once the new entrance to the tavern gets settled in, your players inside the tavern can make rolls to see if they realize anything's off. They need to tell you what they're looking for, or if you've got fairly new players, you can always make suggestions. But again, I leave that for you to decide. Some GMs like to handhold a bit, others don't. I tend to find myself a little more in the middle. If anyone inside the tavern realizes stuff's about to get real, they can maneuver themselves to be ready to counter it, but they need to consider what might happen if they draw down on someone first. After all, these new arrivals haven't done anything either wrong or illegal yet, so if a character draws down on them, the NPC could legally shoot them and most likely get away with it. That doesn't mean they can't make subtle moves, like making sure their pistol is ready to draw and maybe make sure there's a round ready to go. They could also try to talk to one or more of the men in the tavern, trying to either distract them or talk them out of whatever they believe the NPCs are trying to do. Again, you can roll off between the player and the NPC to see if any of the player's words are getting through or not. Also, if you really want, you can do the rolling yourself and regardless of results, decide that nothing changes. This is your game. Run it the way you want. Just remember to be fair. After all, if the players feel like they have no choices or that their choices don't really mean anything, they'll eventually get bored with your game. I unfortunately speak from experience on this one. And it occurs to me before we move on, you're wanting to know where I got these NPCs from. You can do this one of two ways. You can create them yourself using the character creation system that we, we've been using all along. Or just go into the player's guide and pull the template for one of the character types that's there and just run it as an NPC. Easy peasy, good to go. All right, at whatever point you choose, the fellow nearest the door will pull his pistol and announce to the tavern that it's being robbed. He'll ask that all of the patrons hand over their cash and valuables and will try to be as charming as he can be, noting that they won't shoot anyone so long as nobody tries anything stupid. Now, this is where we have to take into account any actions going on outside. If your players outside manage to start a gunfight, the group inside will draw down as soon as the first shot is fired. In my opinion, they'll also be jumpy because their carefully crafted plan will have just been literally shot down, so trying to reason with them won't be easy. 
From here, it's pretty much all initiatives and action. I'll detail initiative, among other things, next week when I dedicate the entire episode to things the GM will want to have notes on. We do need to take into account all of the possibilities of the fight. I mean, there are other people inside the tavern. Are they ducking, running, shooting back? Who gets hit? How bad? Does anybody die? Once the bad guys realize they're not making any money off of this, do they cut and run? How does that go? Is it a running gunfight? Does anyone else in town get involved? And how far does that go? Do the players follow them all the way back to their camp, or do they follow them to the town's entrance, then stop? You don't have to roleplay everything that goes on, and you don't have to make rolls for all of it. If you decide someone in the tavern that isn't a character or bad guy gets shot, then they get shot. Decide how bad, and run from there. And like I said before, it's up to you to decide when the town marshal gets involved. I'd also note that, for me, the bouncer at the entertainment house will get involved if shots get fired out on the street, and he's got a big shotgun. Anyway, if the players follow the bad guys back to their camp, we'll talk about that in a minute. Right now, let's run with the thought that the fight ends in town, one way or the other. If, by chance, they manage to take at least one bad guy alive, then they get the opportunity to escort him to jail. If not, then the mayor will take charge of the cleanup, instructing people to drag the dead shooters outside, and will have others work to tend to the townspeople who were shot. Either way, the group will be tasked by the marshal to head east out of town and see if they can locate the camp the bad guys had to be riding in from. If they took one alive, they can persuade him to tell them that the camp's about an hour outside of town to the east, and it's hidden in some tall brush off the road. So, your party has an adventure to go on. For some groups, this would be enough. However, we all know of that person or two who needs to have a little extra incentive. Read Cash. The marshal will make the deal with the group that if they go check out the camp, he'll hand over the horses and saddles from the bad guys. Now, that might not sound like much, but look up the cost of a horse and a saddle in the player's guide. Cut the horse price in half and the saddle price down by three quarters for being used, and it's not a bad little chunk of change. For those who aren't reading along in the guide, the PCs can make roughly $700 off of this deal just for going to check out the camp. Now, you obviously don't have to give them that much money. Cut the horse price down by three quarters and offer them a couple of bucks for each of the saddles if you want. Or just say the stables will only give them 300 bucks for the lot. Doesn't really matter how you decide to do this. If you're the type who likes to dole out less cash, then go that way. If you like to have your players flush with money, feel free to do that as well. Also, if you're not sure, just remember that if your group seems to have more money than you'd like them to have, we'll come up with some ways to drain their accounts a little bit in a future episode. Probably in two weeks, though we might do it next week. We'll just see. Okay, so our intrepid adventurers should be mounting up and heading east to check out this camp. But if the group is indecisive about going, or they don't want to go at night, though you can have the marshal, this is where having the marshal's helpful, you can have the marshal point out that time is of the essence. I mean, the longer you wait, the greater the chance that whatever is there for the pickings will be long gone. So the group should be grabbing their lanterns, mounting up, and making the hour-long ride out to camp. In theory, they should be trying to do this as quietly as possible. I mean, most folks don't travel in the dark. It's just not safe. That means if someone is riding in the dark, they're either in one heck of a hurry or they're just flat up to no good. Plus, you know the bad guys are going to have some sort of guard posted to keep an eye out. In theory. 
guess that means we need to discuss exactly what's going to be at this camp. I mean, that sort of depends on how things went in town. If, by chance, all six shooters got away, then they're going to all be in camp. They're going to be nervous, jumpy, and in the process of packing camp up to get as far away from Triumph as they physically can. If one or two got away, there'll be a couple of more in the camp for a total of four, same as above. If nobody got away from town, put four here who are absolutely clueless about what happened, but they're going to be on their guard anyway. It's up to the players to decide how they want to approach the camp. But regardless of how, the chances are pretty good, unless their roles are really good for sneaking around, that they will be spotted. Once that happens, they can either try to talk their way through things or shoot their way out. But i do what I could to discourage that. In fact, one of the first things I'd have an NPC do is douse the fire. That adds to the difficulty for everyone in both shooting and trying to find each other. That means if this turns into a firefight, it should be interesting to see if the PCs can pull it off. You'll note for the record, I'm not setting difficulty ratings for these encounters here as we go along. I've got a couple of reasons for that. Personally, I'm going to set them at five, which is about as easy as it gets, because I want to give my group some gimmies in the first session. However, if you wanted to go eight, ten, or even twelve, feel free to do so. There's absolutely nothing wrong with putting a bit of a challenge out there for your players at first. For me, I just want to make the first couple of encounters easy for them, and if I'm being honest, easy for myself as I get back into the Deadlands rules after running pretty much D&D for the past five or six years. When this encounter is concluded, however it concludes, the party will have some stuff to dig through. That's because, unless all of the PCs are killed, either all of the bad guys will be dead or they'll have run off. You can fill out the items however you choose. I'm thinking a lot of basic stuff, some trail rations, a few rounds of ammo, some bed rolls, and maybe a pot or pan or two. One thing that should definitely be there is a wadded up wanted poster for the bad guys. We'll call them the Knoxville Nine, even though there aren't nine of them, and the reward for capture is $300, dead or alive. So now the group gets to collect a bounty, one way or the other. Once they've treated their wounded and cleaned up, they can mount up and head back to Triumph. Let's assume that they'll reconnect with the marshal and bring him up to speed. This will definitely be true if they've taken anyone else into custody. He'll look over the wanted poster and will agree to pay them, but they're going to have to wait until morning when the bank is open. Once everything is sorted out, the group has the rest of the night to themselves. You can play this out if they want to drink, gamble, or talk to each other and or talk to other citizens. You can also assume they've got a room rented for the night so we don't have to play that out. It's okay to give them this one. However, moving forward, they'll have to arrange their accommodations in advance. Once they're done doing everything they want to do for the evening, they rest and we move on to the next morning. At this point, award each player two white chips for completing the two encounters and we move on. The next morning, allow the group to perform whatever morning rituals they perform, including eating breakfast and whatnot. Once they've gotten themselves together, they're going to want to hit up the marshal for their money. When they get there, the marshal has good news for them. He received a wanted poster for the same group this morning, and it has a $400 bounty on it. Obviously, this means the group gets an extra $100. Now, you don't have to do this if you don't want, but I wanted to put a bit of historical accuracy on here, which is that this kind of stuff happened all the time. Bounties got raised, and if you weren't aware, you could lose out on money. So you don't have to be honest about this if you don't want to. But I want the marshal to be someone the group can trust. And to me, this is something he can do that makes himself more trustworthy. 
They'll head to the bank, and the marshal will get them their money. He'll also tell them that he doesn't have any other bounties or missions for them at this time, but he'll let him know if and when he does. The group needs to decide at this point what they want to do, stay in town or ride on. If they decide to ride on, we'll move up the next scenario to here. If they decide they're going to stay in town, they've now got a decent amount of cash on hand, which means they can also spend it. Now, we never really discussed what all the general store carries, but this would probably be a good time to have that figured out. In my opinion, they'll carry pretty much any basic gear from the player's guide you'd like to have. Insofar as weapons, that's up to you. I think it's fair to say the store will have a couple of different pistols, a few rifles, and a shotgun or two. However, I don't think this store will be like an armory. It won't have every weapon any character might want. It will have a few and probably a couple hundred rounds of various ammos on hand. So, they can't buy themselves into being Rambo, but they can get enough to make sure they're doing okay. With the choice made to stay in town, the group can then do whatever they want to do that you're okay with. After a bit, and you do this immediately if they decide they're going to load up to ride out, the mayor will approach the group, or whomever seems to be the leader of the group if they're separated, and asks to speak to them in private. For this, they can head off either into a room upstairs at the tavern, or they can use the jail, because by this point, the marshal is taking away anybody who might have been arrested. So he's got a request to make, but it's pretty obvious he'd rather stick red-hot pokers into both of his eyeballs than ask anybody for a favor. But in this case, he didn't have a choice. He's going to. Long story short, he's got a problem. Or, more to the point, his mine has a problem. As he lays it out, there's something going on in the mines that's keeping his miners from working in those sections of mine. It's been going on for a couple weeks, and things have gotten so bad that the majority of one of his mines has been basically declared a no-go by the miners. Now, he could just fire everybody and bring in more miners, but once word gets out that something's going on there that isn't right, he knows his business might be done. For the record, he doesn't believe there's anything to the rumors, and he will specifically say that they're just hearing things and they're taking it too far. But to satisfy his miners, and by extension the town, he's willing to pay the characters 50 bucks each to explore the mine, prove there's nothing there, then tell the town the mine's clean. Now, you and I both know it isn't nothing, but the players need to believe this is what the mayor believes. Does he really believe it? The way I intend to play it? Nope. He knows something's wrong, but he doesn't want to admit it because he's afraid he'll have to shut the mine down. You should play it however you see fit. It's entirely possible the mayor completely believes there's nothing wrong in the mine. Whatever you choose, play it to the hilt. The players might decide to try to negotiate. Now, how you want to handle that is up to you, and you can choose to increase the money should you want to do that. If the players don't agree to check out the mines, you can always up the ante by having a miner come up missing. At that point, you can have the eyes of the locals turn to the players, seeing them as some sort of special types who can take care of trouble. Yes, I am not above playing to a player's ego if I need to. You can also try shaming them into it if need be by you know, the town looking at them like in, with disdain because, well, they didn't take the job and somebody came out missing. What a birds are jerks. One way or the other, you should be able to convince them to take this matter up. Now, as we discussed in the creation of the town episode, that's episode one for those of you keeping score, the mines are about a half an hour's walk from town. That means that should the players decide to ride horses out there, they'll get there in no more than half the time, probably less. 
Once they get to the mine, they'll be looking for the foreman. The mayor will give them a name. I don't have one handy, so you'll just come up with one yourself. It's fine. Whatever. So long as you're consistent with it. The foreman is a pretty no-nonsense sort of fellow, so he's going to have the opinion that the miners are just hearing things and others are using the reports as an excuse to refuse to work. He wouldn't care, except about two-thirds of one of the mines isn't being worked due to the stories and the lack of production is starting to impact the bottom line. So he's more than willing to allow the players to take a look, especially since the boss has made a deal to solve the problem once and for all. And yes, I just put air quotes around that. Play up the fear running through the miners. I mean, with fear like what's running through the ranks, having these basically gunslingers show up at their mine is gonna have tongues wagging. The foreman will escort them back into the mine. For the record, the front third of the mine is still being used, but they've put up barriers to the back two thirds in an attempt to keep whatever is back there from coming out. Now they're gonna need light sources, but lanterns are available from the foreman if they didn't bring their own. Once they get inside the barriers, they're on their own. The deal is that there are two weird creatures in the mine. You can decide for yourself just how weird you want your creatures to be. Also, if you decide you want or need more than two, please feel free to do so. If your group's bigger, maybe you will want to throw an extra one in. Again, and I've said this again and again and again on this show, I'm planning to go easier on my group for the first couple of sessions, so I'm not trying to match their overall power with what I'm throwing at them. And truth be told, I'll probably never do that. D&D is a game where you need to be aware of the power levels of your party and match up monsters and encounters accordingly. With Deadlands, I think it's really more expected that you'll try to challenge your players, but you're probably not going to put them into a position that they can't either succeed in or fail and still get out alive. Anyway, my weird monsters are going to be wall crawlers, and they are on page 78 of the Marshall's Handbook. Now, you can keep the suspense at a high level in a number of ways, among those being how you describe what's going on inside the mine. Remember, it's dark, it's empty, and it's believed that something is in here shouldn't take much to set your group on edge. Run to combat. Now you can choose to have both wall crawlers come out at once, or you can split them up and do two separate encounters. My plan is to do two encounters since the group will really be on edge after running into one of them, so the opportunities for role play should be excellent. But if your group is larger or you want to challenge them, run them both at once, toss another one in there. Again, I don't judge. Afterwards, the group has a decision to make. Do they just walk out with the carcasses of these weird things? Or do they act a bit more subtle and come out by themselves and speak to the foreman? That's up to the group, and you need to be ready to play it either way. Regardless, they've accomplished the goal they were sent to accomplish, and they should be paid for it. The mayor may have issues with them, especially if they drag out two monster carcasses, but he'll get over it as soon as they report there's nothing else there. By the way, this does give you the opportunity to extend their employment to check out the entirety of both mines. If your group is leaning that way, or if you think it works for you, do that. I'm not, because I don't see my group wanting to go that way, and I decided when I set this up that the two wall walkers they find are the only weird creatures in either mine. But... I could totally see putting another wall walker into either the mine that hasn't been checked or hiding in the unsearched section because it was being used section of the mine that they already checked. Again, go that way if, it's, if it feels right for you. For me, once they've settled up with the mayor, the encounter is done and each player should get a white poker chip for completing the mission. 
At this point, the group will be pivoting into the next big deal we've got for them, but we're, we're getting right on time for this week. So I'm just going to leave that for next time or the time after that, depending. Now, I should point out that after three episodes of the podcast, we've created more than enough content for you to put together and run at least one session of your Deadlands Classic game. Don't worry, I'm nowhere near done yet. Next week, I'm going to provide you as the GM a primer in the basics of what you need and what you need to know to run this game. And if we've got time, we'll start laying out the next encounter for our intrepid band of adventurers. I wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who started taking this new journey with us. We're doing something a little bit different in podcasting, since most folks who do some sort of a campaign build utilize YouTube so that they can put the visuals in place. However, since I was blessed with a face for radio, I'm more comfortable doing this in podcast form. And your responses to the first couple of shows indicate we, we may be onto something. So thank you. Also, I know there have been some issues the past week or so with the various podcast sources like Google Podcasts, iTunes, and the like. I've been working really hard with our podcast provider, RSS.com, to get that worked out, and I'm pretty sure we got the last of the uh, wrinkles ironed, hopefully. But even if we do wind up with more issues, we're almost done with the website, badgmproductions.com, and my plan is to embed a player for this show there. So if we continue to have any more issues, you can just go to the website and get it from there. One more announcement for the show. You may start noticing in the next couple of weeks that we're going to start running ads during the show. Now, RSS.com provides us with the opportunity to find companies and services that we believe will work best for our shows. And we at Bad GM Productions will endeavor to only run ads for stuff we think you are going to be interested in. That being said, if you have a product or service that you would like us to advertise here, reach out to us at badgmproductions.com. I mean, if you listen to the show, you already know whether or not your product or service is something our audience is going to want. Before I hit the wrap-up, I do want to remind everybody that all of the information I've provided from the core books of Deadlands Classic are trademarked and copyrighted by Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and they hold all of the rights to that material. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions, and you can follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Still kind of working out what we're doing over there, but we do have a YouTube channel. Twitch, again, speaking of trying to figure out what we're going to do, we've got a Twitch channel, Bad GM. As I mentioned, you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And to say it again, the website is, is getting close. Come see us, badgmproductions.com. If you've got questions for us about the show or concerns about how to use what we're talking about, please hit us up at any of the sources I mentioned, and I will move mountains to get you your answers. Not literally, I'm not that strong, I meant metaphorically. Anyway, next week, we help the GM fill their toolbox for the upcoming campaign. Then we might do a bit more scenario building, if time provides. You're not going to want to miss next week's show. And until then, this has been Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis.